Welcome to Just the Tip America with your host, Dr. Bill. We invite you to join an open discussion about what Just the Tip really means. There is so much going on in today's world. It is simply overwhelming. We provide a sanctuary to take a breath, catch up, and clear your mind. And we are back. I'm Dr. Bill with Just uh, the Tip America with our now good friend. Last week he wasn't, but now a good friend, Ken Heller, and just a wonderful guest with a whole bunch of great information. Uh, Ken Heller, welcome back. Our UCLA student graduate and 40-year veteran uh, in the administration at uh, UCLA. We we have a couple themes that we want to talk about, but over um, the break, uh, Jose, our sound engineer, was pointing out what my wife Patty points out every fucking day, that I'm very selfish and have taken over the conversation and have not allowed for our team, uh, Cody, Shelby, or Jose, uh, to ask any questions and learn from this great well of information that was kind of poetic i was a student as well uh mm -hmm. jose um ken is fluent in several different languages so pick one out and just ask your question in the language that you choose uh let's just do english okay you know, i can do that for for the listeners we don't know and <laughs> what um <laughs> situation <Thank> they are <laughs> Um, just following the conversation, saying that, you know, if um, parents raise kids knowing, um, you know, what they're comfortable with and their ideas that they're comfortable with, um, often colleges get blamed um, of brainwashing them. I don't know if that's the right word, but that's how people say that that um with new ideas and new ways of um thinking and it might be a shock for them and you know you might think that you're sending your kid with you know the right ideas but then when they get exposed to different ideas then you know there might uh, then what's going to happen let, let me put this in context jose and ken and shelby in our last segment we had asked Ken, how can parents better uh, prepare their children, their kids, their students to go off to a university, leave home, go off to college? And Ken gave some great uh, comments. And your question is, well, Jose uh, is, is really asking, well, what if we are preparing them, but the university throws out a whole bunch of different ideas that are we're new to the family culture or new to what our particular wishes and desires as parents are. Is that a fair comment? Yeah, that's correct. Okay. Um, I have a lot of different responses, but uh, uh, some of them come to mind. If the first time you send your child to Disneyland and you aren't there to accompany them and they're there to experience everything, they're going to come back uh, kind of with their minds blown. Now, you might say, well, that's acceptable because I fully subscribe to everything because I've been to Disneyland before. 
and therefore uh, I'm, I'm fully in agreement with everything about Disneyland and what they're doing and, and all the rides are within the context of what I would want my child to experience. Uh, sending them to uh, uh, an institution of higher ed uh, is there's no question that they're going to be seeing and hearing and experiencing things that uh, they're going to have to process. But everyone comes in, as I think as I, I mentioned previously, the hope is is that uh, you have prepared your 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 child, your student, to be able to process everything with a set of, of we'll say standards, a set of, of belief systems. Um, if those belief systems uh, also accept divergent thought, they'll be just fine. Why? Because they're then going to process that to say, this works for me, that doesn't work for me. I think that, I think colleges are, um, um, they're accused of a lot of things. I sent you home, and in fact, there is a remarkable thing that occurs. Um, and uh, for viewers and uh, or, or the viewee, um, you know, they may discover that the changes between when you send your student off at the end of August or you leave them at the institution and when they come back at Thanksgiving, they are a different person. Also, the student starts to discover that there are differences for themselves. They see their friends, they're hanging out with their friends. Um, generally, the first Thanksgiving is not so bad. You know, you get together, you, you, you go to a football game. There are, there are things that happen during that period of time. And as time goes on, the student does change. How do they change? Well, certainly institutions cause people to ask questions about what do you believe in? What do you stand for? And when we say the institution, Scouts Honor, there is no department that's there on the, let's brainwash, let's, let's change this student's mind. But uh, at the same time, there is a belief system that says we honor divergence of thought and civil discourse. And uh, more often than not, up until that point when you've left home, the concept of civil discourse was never really addressed because we, we have our own rules of how we communicate at home, how we communicate in high school. Uh, but when you get out there and you discover that people really do have different views, say that's very interesting. Whose view will, quote, win out? Will it be those who yell the loudest? Will it be an environment to say, wow, you really have to substantiate your position before you say, this is the truth. Well, you know, for a lot of people, before they left for college, they never had that conversation to say with their families, what is the definition of truth? And we can you can choose whether it's politics or religion or sexual preference, it doesn't matter. Is it the institution? One of my responses during orientation uh, or parent orientation or even before the decision is being made by a college. And we have events where 
students come who have been accepted but haven't decided yet. And I've had so many of those conversations with parents and students about, well, what's important to you? They say, well, you know, this seems so big. And the fact of the matter is um, a, a campus is only as big as the number of segments it's broken up into. You know, we had at UCLA, you know, one says the downside is there's uh, there's 40,000 students. I said, yeah, and we had, uh, when I left, about 1,350 campus organizations. My God, how do, you, how do you choose? Well, it means that for virtually anything that you might have an interest in, there is a group of students and or staff and faculty who have a, 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 a similar interest. So given that, you have the opportunity to be engaged with anything you want. So how do you get connected? You get connected with smaller, with smaller groups. So, uh, but the counsel we would give to people, if I have someone who said, my gravest concern is they come back radicalized or they come back. And I said, well, I'll be terribly honest with you. There's nothing that there's a plan to radicalize your student. But if you're really concerned about them really not changing the way they look, then perhaps you should not send them away to college. Perhaps uh, a local community uh, college would be a good thing. You know, it's many years ago, I worked at uh, both uh, day camps and sleepaway camps. And we were always amazed the difference, no matter what kind of work we did at the day camp. At the end of the day, they would go home and behaviorally or, or just engagement wise, they would come back the next day and whatever we did, that was undone. Sleepaway camp, you send someone away for two weeks, there's the opportunity to truly build an environment. One can make the argument that says, are they being brainwashed? No, they're being exposed to things that they may not be familiar with or may not be comfortable with. So it's a, it's a long-winded answer. But the fact is, shall you blame the institution or shall you blame the circumstances? One could make the argument that you go work in a, in a place and you're now for the first, if that's the first time you're around people that are not like you, number one, it's a terrifying thought. But that's one of the most common things that students come back from that first period of time, first quarter, first and come back for Christmas. And they realize that without them knowing it, they've changed a little bit. You know, they haven't necessarily taken on the full dogma of, of a political view, of a religious view, but it caused them to question those things that they had, that they had learned over the last 18 years. So again, can you prepare your student for diversity of thought, being open, and being willing to at least uh, listen and question how that feels. Many of the classes they'll take will cause them to question. It will not convince them to change and, 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 and become radicalized, but it will cause them to challenge their own belief systems. I, uh, what a great answer. And I actually find it very stimulating, seriously, that I'm as I'm listening to you, Ken, I'm tweaking my views on indoctrination and what happens uh, and noting in my own personal life with our son, Joey, him being exposed to 
uh, activities in classes that, though I was aware of occurring, never thought that in the course of his education he would be exposed to, and no one died. Everyone is yeah. okay, and uh, we talk daily. Um, so yeah, a, a very cool concept. The other, the other thing that I find tremendous with you, and, and what a great guest, because you've thrown me another softball with Jose's question, which was great, thanks Jose. Um, you give the analogy or the comparison between Disneyland and going to college, going to university, both tremendously expensive, and both when I leave the park or leave the university after a day-long ride, whatever it was, was it fucking worth the money we spent? So the, the question was posed last segment. We all hear about student debt. And I think you shared with us earlier at one point or maybe a, an off-mic conversation about a third of uh, freshman students, not just at UCLA, but across the board at universities, don't come back. They have right. spent um, a year trying to make it, whether it's emotional or financial or other pragmatic reasons, they don't come back. And so the money that is spent, is it worth it? Two, the money that is spent when you find not only do a third of the people not come back, there's a, a large, impressive number of people who in retrospect say, you know what, I shouldn't have done that major. It was interesting. I know about artwork in Italy and in Greece, but I'm not sure how it's going to put food on the table for me and my family as I get into the uh, uh, in the work segment, workforce. So is it worth it? That's such a, a uh, it's such a challenging question. Uh, you, know, you know, it used to be that the answer was uh, the cost of education is very high. The cost of um, not being educated is higher. Uh, so, uh, you know, I don't, let's put it this way. I believe there are preparations one can help a student uh, take that will increase the probability of the value being higher when they graduate. I can track two students side by side. The one who goes through and uh, is completely focused on academic life and studies every day, studies nightly, uh, goes through, gets great grades. Um, I, I can't tell you what the incoming uh, uh, GPA is now, but there was a point during my, my time that the average entry for attending UCLA was over a 4 Now that's terrifying. I know that I never could have gotten in because with the number of, of AP classes. So you're not walking in with a group of people who are not, who, who are you know, not very smart. You're walking in with the, with the absolute top of, of their class. So you take the one student who is just on the academic mission. You take the student next to him that is um, focused on academics, but also is starting to explore what are the things that are really of interest to me. 
and again because I spent yeah um, I I spent close to, to 40 years or a fair amount of my time working with students who wanted to explore their areas of interest whether it was student activities whether it was student leadership uh, student government um, and the if I take those two side by side what are the probabilities for employment what are the probabilities for exposure to things that that will make want to be part of their life there's no question that the educational experience which doesn't happen necessarily and this is not me saying trade schools are bad i believe trade schools are extraordinary and for people that that's what they're they're drawn to and that's what they want to do it is a direct path they will learn a skill which is applicable that they will make a great living at uh, one could make a, a similar argument about uh, about the medical profession because along the way you're refining what's important to you and what you want to spend the rest of your your working life doing but punchline on it is as an institution by itself uh is there value in it will someone ever see a return well i've always been reticent to compare uh, investments in higher ed as no different than an investment in a stock why because uh in in the end result the um the beneficiary of it is you um are there less expensive routes to accomplish a task well if you know what you want to do it makes it so much easier to to, to identify the, the path if you don't know what you want to do as the old adage goes, uh, it doesn't matter what road you take because it's it's really quite irrelevant and you'll learn along along the road. So do I believe that the cost of education has, has grown extensively? It has, there's no question about it. Uh, do I have reason to believe that along the way someone's making more money than they used to institutionally? I don't believe so. I know that it's a challenging time. This during COVID, wow, what an amazing, I had the opportunity to learn a bit about the economics of, of certainly of, of university life and some private institutions during COVID. What do you do? Well, the, the fact of the matter is, is that there's a belief that uh, institutions are driven almost exclusively by tuition, that they stay in business. It's not. Uh, there are very few institutions that operate exclusively on tuition. They're still getting a fair amount of support from from uh, from state and from endowments and from from uh, uh, donations. So, so punchline on it is is that if you know what you want to do, and that truly is your passion, I'll give you a, a, a simple example. I've known a number of undergraduates who, as undergraduates, were involved in theater arts. They loved acting. That was their passion. They got to they got to their graduation, and they say, "I have a tough decision to make. I can go on and refine my my skills with a master's in this." And they said, "Tell me, what's your intention? Is your intention to teach?" And they said, "No." So, what do you want to do? I said, "Be an actor." I said, "Then let me give you the best advice that someone gave me a long time ago when uh, I asked, how do you become a, um, a an artist manager?'" I said, that's easy, find an artist and manage them. So 
um, especially being in some place like Los Angeles. And I, I never, um, I, I never forget that because I used to go to conferences and people say, oh, it's so easy for you. You're in Los Angeles. You're in this hub. So you get all these resources. I said, well, you know, there are some distinct advantages in being in, in major entertainment centers, being in New York, being in Los Angeles. Why? Because as a student, you have incredible opportunities. If I, as a, as a considering a master's and I'm not going to teach, but you want to get your skills up, there are so many classes to take outside of the university. And they may or may not be as expensive. You certainly don't have all the other expenses that go along with it. But to take a dance class, to take a vocal class with someone who both is a professional, but also will connect you. But that's exceptional. That's, you know, that's it. That is a form of, 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 of a trade. So it really comes down to what is it you want to do? Over the years, I found that there's very few people when they first start the process to know what they want to do. I was always envious. I mean, I was, I know this is a terrifying thought. I was envious of you because you knew you wanted to be a doctor. You may not have exactly known the kind, uh, kind of doctor or the specialty versus good or bad. Doctor. A good looking one. That was my whole good looking one. And I, I, well, you know, I'm glad everything else came to be, uh, <laughs> but, but, but nonetheless, uh, so envious of people that knew what they wanted to be. They wanted to be a doctor. They wanted to be a lawyer. They mm. wanted to be a candlestick maker. That's great because that means that the paths are, you can create your path. But what if you don't? What if you don't know what it is and you want to be someplace where you could be exposed and explore? You know, I can put on my hat and say, now here are the upsides of being at the most applied to public institution in the United States. This past year, I believe UCLA, I want to say there were 150,000 applications. Uh, why? I'm not quite sure, you know, why there are so many. But the punchline on it is, is it opens doors that might not be open for you otherwise. You actually get to take a class with a Nobel laureate. You get to interact with people who have such diverse backgrounds. And quite often your path will be fashioned by the experiences you have during that four or five or you know plus years. You lead again, thank you for that insight. You you lead me into something a, a little bit tangential from this, and that is the metric of success for your students at the university. Uh, the, the whole concept of just the tip America was just the tip of everything. Understanding that life is not perfect, understanding that some days don't turn out as planned. And if our metric was just that 4.0 or 4.2, whatever to get in, it almost implies that these students have never failed. And if you haven't failed, I'm a big proponent. Many of my peers graduated with summa cum laude and summa magna cum laude. And I graduated summa cum luck. I don't know how the fuck <laughs> I got out of there. Uh, to the point where I've never revisited any of the institutions that I've graduated from. Because I'm sure they made a mistake. 
I'm sure they have. And I don't answer any calls. I don't answer email. We want your certificate back. No, he doesn't live here anymore. Or no habla inglés. So I am, if, if anyone could gauge or say that I'm successful is because I had a lot of fucking failures. And I had, mm -hmm. though I was tremendously lucky and enjoyed the support of a wonderful family, as you know, I've had a lot of failures and I learned from those. And for one, if you haven't failed, you don't know where your red line is. You don't know how you can do until you keep going until you can no longer do anymore. That That's one issue. But the other issue is once you fail, and I think that anyone who is honest with themselves and is successful will say, you know what? I was motivated by those failures and I learned to unfail myself. Mm -hmm. I was just relentless. And I don't know from my perspective, sometimes I, I know I have family members who have won that challenge at, at, at a university, have won that challenge. They saw their failures and they unfailed themselves and I'm very proud of them. But I don't know if that is an accepted metric for metric for success at the university. Is it or is it different? Is it all still grades and accolades and getting that and getting that certificate said that you've never been absent or tardy one day of your four years at the institution? Um, I'll go back to the answer I gave last. It depends on. I can't afford to go back to Disneyland. Don't make me go back there. Um, you know what? It depends on um, what it is that you plan to do. Um, you, you know, the, the, the definition of, of, of success, let's put it this way. Let me, let me talk for a moment about, and I, uh, I, I, I can't disagree at all about your, what you had to say about, about failure. Um, early on in my career in student development, I, I sat with with someone who came to respect him, became a, a, a great friend. And he shared something with me that was absolutely to this day resonates, which is what is it we do in the field we're in, which is working with students who are learning how to do remarkable things. He said, we allow failure. We never allow disaster. And that can be defined in any number of ways, irreparable personal harm, irreparable financial harm. So the fact is that I've had students, as an example, who had incredible failures financially for losing a ton of money on a concert. In other words, you had only, you know, 100 people show up instead of 1,000 people for any number of reasons. And you sit back and they say, oh, this is, this is terrible. I said, well, what's the takeaway? It wasn't your money. The institution will continue because we budgeted for that. How would you have felt if you had made the show for free and you then had 500 people? You were going to, quote, lose the same amount of money. So you have to define what's really Im important. And I learned when I was in high school and I learned through growing up, I got really tired of hearing the expression, but it was a learning experience. Because I generally heard, when I heard learning experience, it meant that just immediately before that, I had realized I had been screwed. And something terrible had happened. But there was someone there to say it was a learning experience. No, not all painful experiences 
need to be learning experience. You know, a sigmoid osteoscopy is not necessarily a positive, but nonetheless, you say, see, it was a learning experience. No, I learned that I do not wish to have that done to me again until it's required. So punchline on it is, is so that- So we're canceling our weekend date? No. <laughs> All right, that's fine. I just need to know, because I got a lot of people. I'm putting it off till just right before Christmas. Till just the tip, the right okay. Holiday, <laughs> in the right holiday mood. Uh, but but so it still comes down to what is important to you. You know, you said is is the you know is is that still the litmus test to do well? It seems to be when it comes to professional, um, you know, pr professional uh, uh, certifications. Although more and more uh, part of the interview process, because we've spent a lot of time you know, talking with people who hire. And again, you take those two people and say, you know, we talked about the academically inclined, the one who was involved with certain things. Now let's take them both and they're sitting there uh, ready to go into a job interview. And I won't even limit it by saying what kind of, what kind of job, but let's say it's a job interview that they really want to get to know who are you, the kind of person. Gee, Dr. Bill, I see that you had a, a 4.2, a 4 that's really remarkable. Uh, gosh, you know, did you work really hard? That would be a different Dr. Bill <laughs> on that, a different station. I think it's a Taylor Swift. <laughs> um, uh, but th let's say, it's, yeah, there's another Dr. Bill. Uh, <clears throat> but so then you have the second person said, Mr. Heller, that's really interesting. I see you had a 3.4, which is about what I think my, uh, my undergraduate degree, I did better on my MBA, but uh, you had a 3.4. But tell, tell me about th those 40 concerts you produced and the number of people you managed during that time. So the fact of the matter is, is that, and it's, you know, it's a, yeah, okay, for, of course we get it. Take two people, they're academically similar, even if one is, is great, but you have someone who has a lot of other experience. Experience will always, for the most part, win out. Why? Because your effectiveness to do a job will not be promulgated based on how you tested. It, it, it truly, there is no connection on that. So the greatest counsel I have to, uh, I, I had to my own kids, I have to anyone that I have the opportunity to influence. And as we sat there with students making the decision as to whether or not to go to UCLA, to go to Berkeley, to go to Stanford, to go to where, wherever, to go to Harvard. So wherever you go, fully engage yourself. If you end up and you simply have a degree, unless you tell me you want to be a doctor or you want to be a lawyer, and in the end result, you would still best have great grades, but also have a stunning uh, uh, extracurricular life. Because out of that, the fact that you were editor of the Daily Bruin, or you were student body president and you actually were engaged in that meant that you can do things that others may not be able to do and that's what makes you a greater candidate so is it possible to prepare yourself for the job field and yes i've had my share of what we called hot dogs those who just wanted to be involved with everything and there was, it was rare when you had people who were good at a bunch of stuff but they were fully committed and they stayed committed. So 
do I believe that it's changed? I believe that for graduate programs, that there is still, it's used as a litmus test, but things are changing. The SAT is no longer. The kinds of questions that are being asked during job interviews are different. Group process is much more interesting. And the fact is, the person who, what we used to call ghosts in the residence halls, you'd see them in a meal, you'd then see them there in class, they'd go to the library at night, they'd come back, they'd eat a meal the next day, but they didn't do anything else. They are very ill-prepared. Also, the number of classes that include group projects have increased. Someone has realized that uh, we can get a much better sense of the kind of person you are to see how you interact with others. And included in that is that terrible thing of, oh my God, you mean there's going to be people that are different than me? There's going to be different political views, religious views, uh, color, sexual orientation. Uh-huh. Let's see how you do. Can you do this either learning from it or, quote, in spite of what holds you back? And that was very clear for my MBA. I went to Cal State Northridge for that. I was amazed at almost every class there was a group project. Why? Because group process is so critical to uh, the success. So, um, you know, is academics by themselves the litmus test? I don't believe so anymore. And I certainly know that in interviews, quite often for many fields, group there are interviews, but they're group interviews. They're also evaluating how did you do? Did you grandstand? Did you have to get your last word in? Did you process? Did you make room for other people's perspectives? All I know is that's someone I would rather work with and certainly someone I would rather higher and uh, that comes across so wow hopefully uh, that addresses that thought of no it. ken heller what a, a great guest i'm gonna um i have a couple uh things to close with and then i'm going to give you about 60 seconds to give us our takeaways for this interview ken uh, sure. uh while we're talking i'm going to have uh uh, Shelby, uh, tell us where uh, our viewers can catch us on our social media platforms and Jose will take us out. But I want to thank uh, Ken Heller, a 40-year veteran uh, from UCLA, offering some tremendous insight on what was occurring 40 years ago when we were hanging out together on Sunset in my, uh, my 501s in Blue Blazer. I think I still have those. Uh, and what mm -hmm. what uh, went on recently when he just left. So thank you, Ken, for that. Thank you, guys, for listening. Uh, as always, thank you for the opportunity to uh, entertain and hopefully educate just the tip America to saying it's okay to fail and it's okay to learn from your mistakes. And these are challenges, not death sentences. So thank you, guys. Shelby, how can our listeners uh, uh, drink more from our vast fountain of knowledge. What do we need to do? Is the mic on, Jose? And Jose, uh, we're gonna talk, we're gonna get back to Ken in just a second. Uh, yeah, so um, podcast platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasters, I mean, on, on most of the major platforms, whatever podcast you're into. Um, social media, you can reach us at Just the Tip America. 
basically at Instagram, Facebook, uh, YouTube, uh, Twitter. What's our new website that TikTok, you've been working on? I'm, I'm famous on TikTok. Um, and then, of course, you could find all of those at uh, justthetipamerica.com. Okay, thank you, Shelby. Ken, give us 60 seconds. Give us some more inspiration before we take off and Jose takes us out. I'll share my favorite, one of my favorite stories of mingling with the greats in the universe. Um, we had the speakers program and we would often uh, drum up some kind of a award to give to get people that normally would we could never get them to speak at UCLA. So we had an award called the Charles Chaplin Award for Outstanding Contributions in Comedy. Uh, and uh, uh, not just comedy, in, in, in all facets of, of uh, uh, the arts. So one year they chose to give it to Betty Davis, Miss Betty Davis. And of course, when she arrived, the students were too um, afraid to talk with her because uh, they weren't as as comfortable talking with people that were older than them. So they said, Ken, you go talk to her. So I spent some time with her and she was lovely and just so honored that she could be there for the Charlie Chaplin Award. And uh, so we were chatting and um, we were backstage and she said, you know, I have to tell you that I am so honored uh, to receive this award because I loved every film critique he ever had. And I realized that she thought this was a award for Charles Champlin, the Los Angeles Times film critic. And I stood there and I thought, oh my God, this could be the greatest disaster of, uh, perhaps of her life, certainly mine. And I turned to her and I said, Miss Davis, I, I don't know how to say this. This award is for Charlie Chaplin. You know, the little waif that I actually, you know, I stood there and I, I you know, tried to look like I had a mustache. She looked at me and she said, oh my God, Mr. Heller, will you please excuse me for just a moment? And she turned. And of course, my memory of it was that I heard just at that moment, and please give a warm UCLA welcome for Miss <laughs> Betty Davis. And I took her arm and I walked out with her and I'm thinking, this could be really bad. And I walked her up to the stage, I walked away, they gave her the award and then it was customary for the award recipient to talk. She did 15 minutes about Charlie Chaplin and about going to his home and about having dinner and how they loved this and he had this favorite one and she went on and on and i'm just going there is a god and and i waited and then when she finished i walked up and i took her arm and we walked away when i got her to the green room she just turned to me and she said thank you <laughs> a real artist so uh truly an artist so there's always that opportunity to fix things, even at the last moment. Very Thank good. you. This has been greatly. Uh, this has been a great joy. Ken, we'll talk to you again. Thank you so much. Take us out, Jose. Thank you. Thanks for finishing with Just the Tip America. You've been with Dr. Bill, and he is looking forward to creating yet another tip with you. We invite you to become a big, fat member and subscribe. 
Make your time spectacular. It is all up to you. Grab what you can out of life and join us at justthetipamerica.com. 